This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to a special edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Today's show comes from Chicago, we are where we are at the annual Workers' Compensation Conference, sponsored by the American Bar Association, and it's tort, trial, and insurance practice, workers' compensation section, and the Employers' Liability Law Committee. This evening also we'll see the induction of the second class of fellows of the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers, and I want to congratulate those of you in our audience, and we do have a live audience today uh, that is unique to our show for your selection as fellows. We're here at the conference on national trends and emerging issues in workers' compensation, and as I said, we're recording our show before a seminar audience, and we have two great guests uh, today, uh, two gentlemen that I have uh, met for the first time uh, this week. I have read their articles and Newsletters uh, over the years, they probably are the two single most prominent experts in the economics and study of workers' compensation laws around the country and around the world. Uh, Professor John Burton is the Professor Emeritus of the School of Management and Labor Relations at Rutgers University. He received his JD and PhD in economics from the University of Michigan. He is a prolific author on all matters relating to workers' compensation, and he has served as chair of the National Commission on State Workers' Comp Systems. Professor Ed Welch is professor and director of the Workers' Comp Sensation Center of the School of Labor and Industrial Relations at Michigan State University. From 1991 to 1999, he was editor of the newsletter on workers' compensation. He was the director of the Michigan Bureau of Workers' Disability Compensation and is a former claimants attorney in Muskegon and Battle Creek, Michigan. In 1990, he received the Outstanding Achievement Award in Workers' Compensation from the National Association of Manufacturers. Not bad for a former claimant's attorney. Welcome, Ed and John. Professor Welch, I want to start with you. You uh, authored an article in the spring edition of Workers' First Watch, which is published by the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, and it deals with uh, the future of workers' compensation and workers' compensation reform. And, and in your article, uh, you pose a question uh, or a hypothesis, perhaps tongue-in-cheek, perhaps seriously, that the trend in workers' compensation laws around the country in the last 10 or more years uh, lead you to conclude or some to conclude that there might be a, and I'll use your words, conspiracy to federalize workers' compensation. Could you tell us what you meant by that? Well, I, this is John Burton. I think we may have mixed the, uh, the speakers here, but, but I wrote an article where I tried to look at the developments over the last 10 or 15 years and put them in some explanatory framework. As a, as a general background, uh, workers' compensation costs to employers have gone down over the last 15 years. The benefits to workers have gone down. Profitability has gone up. And yet we're continuing to see a series of efforts uh, to reform state workers' compensation laws. By and large, by reform, we mean passing rules that make it tougher for workers to qualify for the benefits. And the question is, why would we be continuing to scale back the 
uh, eligibility rules in workers' comp programs if, in fact, the program is doing so well in terms of serving the interest of employers, lower cost, and the insurance industry, higher profits. And so kind of tongue-in-cheek, I put together a little scenario that says, well, there's a series of things that are going on that can only be explained by one factor, and that is a vast conspiracy to uh, federalize the state workers' compensation programs. And I pulled out some examples, kind of a stretch on this thing. But in addition to the compensability rules, the fact that second injury funds, which have historically been a centerpiece of most state workers' compensation laws, Second injury funds are a way for a worker with a previous disability to find a job because the new, the employer is relieved of some of the responsibility for the financial consequences of an injury if there's a second injury for that worker. Those second injury funds have been abolished in about half the states. And the rationale had that has been used, I think, is just unpersuasive in terms of the evidence that we know for example, that since the ADA, if anything, most scholars have, have concluded that this plight of disabled workers has gotten worse, not better. So that we can't, as some people have argued, assume that the ADA is taking care of, of workers. So there's a series of these things, and I kind of then concluded and said, well, there must be something, a vast conspiracy. This is a great tradition in American literature and politics and so on of always finding these grand conspiracies. And so I came up with my own conspiracy that uh, there has to be somebody behind the scene that is clearly trying to push all these changes through in state programs to make the state programs look so bad that the federalization would be the inevitable consequence. I admitted at the end of the paper that that's not really likely that there's this vast conspiracy, but I then alternative offered my alternative explanation, which essentially was that employers and carers uh, were suffering from a grand uh, seizure of myopia, that they were winning battles in state after state in terms of scaling back costs and compensability without recognizing that what they're doing is jeopardizing the continued viability of the whole system. And so at the end, I just kind of said the paradox of which, which scenario would you rather believe? Would you rather believe there's a vast conspiracy or would you rather believe that it's just mass myopia that is, that is, uh, explains these series of things that are happening, uh, to, I think, seriously undercut the viability of the state workers' compensation system? Now, I've lived in both Marblehead, Massachusetts, and Beverly, Massachusetts. I don't know if you're familiar with the geography of Massachusetts, but at the entry to both towns, there are a similar sign, birthplace of the American Navy, and the two towns have been battling probably for 200 or so years as to which lays claim. And we are getting very close to the year 2011, which is a very meaningful year because that was the first year that workers' compensation laws were passed in the United States, and we even had a little discussion this morning about which state was the first. And one of the uh, panel discussions just before the show had to do with where do we go from here. So I'm going to turn to Professor Welch and, first of all, uh, ask you to share with us the fact that we now have almost 100 years of experience in this country of workers' comp, and are we going to see it for the next 100 years? Well, as I, uh, as I was saying to a panel earlier, um, I, I think there's the, a question as to whether we really need a separate workers' compensation system, uh, a different system for people who get hurt off the job and on the job, 
And we devote a lot of resources to making that distinction. In many cases, there's litigation over simply that question. And I think viewing it from a society as a whole is a question of whether it's worth that. Um, I believe that sooner or later we're going to merge those into a single system. But looking at the uh, pace at which change has happened over the last hundred years, I don't think it's going to happen in the lifetime of anybody that's here. Professor Burton, from where you sit, what are you uh, seeing now that we have had this wave of workers' comp change and uh, reform, some people call it deform, depending on whose acts has been gored by the legislature of the particular state, where do you see uh, this going in terms of either uh, uh, uniformity within states, either directed by the federal government or in some other fashion? Well, realistically, I don't think we're going to see uniformity among the states. I think we had a movement resulting from the National Commission on State Workmen's Compensation Laws that put its report out in the 70s. There was some threat of a federal intrusion into the system and a series of recommendations of what benefit levels ought to be, and that for a while the disparities among the states uh, were, were narrowing. But I think that's no longer the case. I think the, the realistically despite my little uh, scenario here that suggested federalization, I think that that's not really taken very seriously at the state level. And by and large, the states where employers and the insurance industry have got the muscle to push through reforms uh, that cut back benefits, they're doing it. And the states where they don't have that much influence, uh, New Jersey, for example, uh, they're not being able to get away with that. So... I think the disparity is, is, is widening, particularly in terms of rules of who's eligible for getting into the workers' comp system. And so I, at least in the next 10, 15, 20 years, which is much as horizon as I think I would even begin to uh, try to have, I don't see anything happening except probably a, a con- continuing divergence among the states in terms of how, the, how good the programs are, how well the programs are operating. Perhaps. Uh, just to put that in perspective a bit and to review some of the things we've talked about earlier, earlier this morning that your listeners might not have heard, is um, the cost trends we've seen in workers' comp. The costs went up fairly dramatically um, through the late 80s and into the early 90s. Since the early 90s, the trend has been clearly towards lower costs. Benefits uh, per $100 of wages to workers today are about a third lower than they were 12 years ago. Costs to employers are about 20% lower today than they were 12 years ago or 13 years ago. Um, there's virtually no other cost of doing business that's 20% lower today than it was 12 to 15 years ago. But that's clearly true of workers' comp. It's true of almost every state. Uh, California has perhaps been the exception, but the costs in California, I think, have dropped dramatically in the last year or two. Um, so uh, the profits for the insurance companies are up right now, although there's been bigger swings in that. That that goes up and down depending on a variety of factors. So uh, when we talk about the future of it, I think you have to take into account uh, that the costs have been down dramatically for a substantial period of time. And I don't think that's going to continue indefinitely. And I think the elephant in the room, and we're starting to hear it obviously in the presidential campaign, is universal health care. And this is a major um bone of contention between the Republicans and the Democrats, yet within the two nominees uh, vying for the nomination on the Democratic side, there's uh, a closer uh, uh, opinion on universal health care. 
How does that factor into either federalization of workers' comp or the survival of a state-based uh, system? Well, I don't know the details on the on the plans of the Democratic candidates. As far as I know, there's been nothing comparable to the proposal that was made in the first Clinton administration, early 90s, of essentially folding the workers' comp health care system into a general national health care plan. Uh, now, I obviously hardly anybody knows what the details of these these uh, candidates, whoever gets elected president, we're eagerly awaiting to see exactly what the health care plan is rather than just the, you know, the one-page summary version of the thing, and it may be that somebody will come back on that issue. But I think um, the whether there is a national health care plan that uh, impinges, uh, impinges on state health care workers' compensation the pressures are going to build internally because the cost of health care in, in general for employers and particularly within a workers' comp system are going up very rapidly. And uh, it's putting a lot of enormous pressure on the system to try to figure out what to do about these higher health care costs. And we have had states that have tried various reforms of fee schedules and so on, but I think those are temporary patches. And so whether we'll get back to a movement that began, that was in the early 90s, there was an effort to, to look at uh, so-called 24-hour coverage. Most of the variants of that it involved ways of taking the health care in workers' comp and merging it with the health care of employers provided for non-work-related incidents. That kind of disappeared in the mid-90s because the workers' comp costs were going down so rapidly, including health care costs for a while. But now we've got a reemergence of rapid increase in health care costs and workers' comp, and I think that's going to bring that issue back to the front. And at the state level, we may very well see some efforts to try to figure out a way, can we put these health care systems together uh, in a way that's more efficient? I, I think you kind of have to put it in perspective this way. Um, health care is about half of the workers' comp benefit dollars, more than half in many states. Um, but in the big picture, workers' comp is only about 3% of all the health care costs. So that I think what happens in the rest of healthcare is going to have a huge impact on workers' comp, whereas workers' comp isn't going to have much of an impact on the rest of it. Um, you hear a lot about the uninsured, the, the men and women in this country who don't have health insurance, and morally, I think that's a serious issue. But probably an even bigger problem is how costly healthcare is in this country. We spend more money on healthcare, way more, than any other industrialized country, and our outcomes aren't necessarily any better. We're not necessarily getting better health care for spending more money on it. And I think there's a growing consensus that we have to do something to fix the health care system. But I don't think there's any consensus on what it is that we're going to do. Well, just to follow up on that uh, a bit on this thing, it's not just that the U.S. health care system is out of whack with the rest of the country. is that we now have literally hundreds of studies that have looked at the outcomes of the health care provided to injured workers and compared it to comparable workers, comparable persons who are injured the outside the workers' comp system, and almost invariably we're finding that the workers' comp health care outcomes are worse. They're more expensive. People don't go to back as work as fast and so on. Now, we can understand some of that because, as we all know, a lot of times the health care, the recovery process for an injured worker gets intertwined with, with law cases and contests over cash benefits and so on, and so it's not a very nice 
environment in which to promote rehabilitation in a lot of cases. But I think that, again, the fact that the workers' comp healthcare system is increasingly looked at as kind of aberrational relative to even the rest of the healthcare system is another reason why there's going to be some pressures on the, the healthcare system to figure out a way to put the two, put these healthcare systems in, together in a more rational way. I want to shift gears a little bit when we are talking about trends, future trends, past trends, and this is a unique opportunity for me as a primarily really a worker's lawyer, a litigator in the adjudicatory process and looking out on our audience today, we're about evenly split between defense attorneys and claimants attorneys. So it's a unique uh, uh, situation that I have that we can talk to some academia-based uh, people that understand the economics of workers' comp and labor relations. And in that setting, I want to ask uh, you about this. The underpinning of workers' comp at its inception was a trade-off between the civil uh, uh, remedies available to an injured worker in exchange for a guaranteed and swift uh, benefit with a predictable cost to an employer. And probably over the last 20 or 25 years, we have seen an erosion of this exclusive remedy uh, by a whole series of causes of action, whether they be under state uh, or federal anti-discrimination laws and uh, harassment laws, uh, ADA laws, um, other types of exposures that employers never contemplated when workers' comp became uh, a requirement. From your perspectives in um, teaching economics and labor relations, how do you see the erosion of the exclusive remedy as affecting the viability of the workers' comp system and, and what role has it had for the increased costs to employers? I, I don't see a significant erosion of the exclusive remedy. Uh, I think for personal injuries, uh, I think employers are still pretty well protected from, from civil suits. Uh, and uh, the, uh, there's a concern that... Um, if when you take things out of the comp system, like uh, aggravation of pre-existing conditions, that that will result in a lot of civil suits. Um, but in Oregon, for example, where they've done that, um, in Texas, where employers can opt out of the workers' comp system, we haven't seen a big increase in civil litigation. I think there's only a couple of states that I could identify where the exclusive remedy provision is broken down in a way that I think gives some legitimate concern to employers. Uh, my state, New Jersey, happens to be one of them. We've had some decisions within the last four or five years on the so-called intentional injury exception to the exclusive remedy provision, which have um, allowed employees to claim both workers' comp and uh, bring a tort suit. Obviously, their coordination in terms of the benefits. But some of these cases, I, I think, in a sense, I agree with with uh, I, I do agree with Ed that. These are probably been exaggerated because the cases that we had in New Jersey, let me just take the, the, the one that is, is the most notorious on this thing. We had a, a, uh, an employee who worked in a plant where there was a safety guard that came with the machine and that machine was slower with the safety guard in place. So the employer tied the safety guard up out of the way except when the OSHA inspectors came around when he put it down and then as soon as the OSHA inspectors left, he put it back up. Well, one day, an employee, not surprisingly, got his hand caught in this press and lost some fingers and was able to successfully convince the New Jersey Supreme Court that that 
that the employer action was so aberrational that it constituted an intentional injury. And because it was absolute, almost certainty, given some other facts in this case as well, the warnings that the uh, employer had received from safety engineers and so on, that you're taking a high risk here, all those things in place made this a, a, an exception. And it got a lot of publicity, but it's a pretty rare event. And, and I think, therefore, in general, the, the intentional injury exception is not a major component of what's driving costs for employers. Before we wrap up, let's maybe go back to where we started, and that is the general premise that benefits have been going down, insurers' profits have been going up, and uh, the, for example, in Massachusetts, where our last major revision of the workers' compensation law occurred in 1992, which really resulted in a wholesale slashing of benefits across the board and a very marked decrease in premiums and uh, profitability for both the employment community and the workers' comp uh, community. We have been trying in Massachusetts, generally regarded as a fairly progressive state in terms of injured workers or workers in general, to even make some minor adjustments in that benefit structure. And I don't see the ability to do that that we once enjoyed uh, back before even I started practicing. Is it a is it a changing workforce? Is it a changing role of labor unions? What is accounting for the fact that uh, profits are up, benefits are down, and we can't change that? Well, I think there's been a change in perception of workers' comp, that it's been sold to the public in general, that it's a big ripoff, that everybody that, that claims benefits is a fraud. Um, and there's been a, a huge change in attitude of the general public towards workers' comp that it prevents states like Massachusetts, even though costs are down, from taking back some of the things that were uh, given away uh, earlier. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add on the profitability issue, I think we need to put this in a somewhat lo- a longer context, longer-term context, because it was true in the very late 80s and early 90s that insurance industries had serious deficit uh, underwriting losses. With all of the changes in the mid-90s, profitability returned, but and then in the very late 90s, uh, the insurance industry and workers' comp again went started running underwriting losses, and now we're back at a cycle where they're running some major profitability. I don't think that there's anything inherent in workers' compensation that makes it excess, excessively profitable. Uh, we're right now in a cycle phase where it is profitable, but I, but I, I don't think we ought to be thinking about the reforms in workers' compensation uh, as something that needs to deal with the uh, excess of profits. For one thing, most states have deregulated the workers' comp insurance market, and my own feeling is that deregulation allows the profits to work themselves out over a fairly quick cycle. So that's not the problem as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the problem, I think, more in, in most states, uh, the problem is more that the tide has turned, and I think Ed's put his finger on part of it. It's been a, it's been an educational job, if you will, by uh, employers and so on, that there's a major fraud problem. And then I think that the, the demise of the trade union movement in a lot of states is a, is a major factor in terms of why uh, the, the balance in the legislature has, has shifted against uh, against those who want adequate and equitable workers' comp benefits. And one last question. Which state was the first? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's my answer to that. It actually wasn't a state. The very first workers' comp program in, in the United States was a federal program, the Federal Employees' Compensation Act of 1908. 
So let's not get carried away on which state it was, because I'm not a great supporter of federal programs, but if you've got to be fair about this thing, it's the federal government was who took the lead on this, not the states. <laughs> I don't know how many people in the audience would view that as a compromise. but Good compromise. Yeah. Well, at least those from uh, Wisconsin and Massachusetts can stop uh, debating the way uh, Marblehead <laughs> and Beverly are still going to continue the fight. Well, I want to thank you both for being here this, uh, this morning. Uh, it's been my pleasure to ask you questions and to listen to your answers and, and hear the program before we started. And I want to thank you very much and thank those of you who stuck around to listen to us. And on behalf of Legal Talk Network and on behalf of Workers' Comp Matters, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.